Welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. This week we feature the longtime sports writer and columnist for the Chicago Tribune, Paul Sullivan. Oh my gosh. Well, Big Z, as I called him, as you know, had quite a few incidents that uh, were beyond the pale, uh, you know, shouting, screaming, throwing things, smashing things with a bat. And so it was, it was my job to chronicle this and uh, I, you know, I said, hey, you know, this guy acts like an idiot. He's a good pitcher, but he acts like a fool and it's a bad example for kids. Sully, as he's best known, has been at this for 40 years, mostly covering baseball. He's chronicled the ups and downs, mostly downs of the Cubs and White Sox, and over the past several years, also written about all Chicago teams and other important stories for the newspaper's famous column, In the Wake of the News. He is relentless in his pursuit of facts and has been awarded the Illinois Sports Writer of the Year three times, and in 2018 earned the prestigious Ring Lardner Award for Excellence in Sports Journalism. And did you know he hobnobbed with some famous movie stars? So, Sully, Paul Sullivan, tell me a story I don't know. I guess I would have to start with the uh, fact that my career has taken some zigzags, especially at the beginning. Uh, and I started out as a bellboy at the Drake Hotel before I was in journalism. Uh, worked there probably three, four months. I carried Bill Cosby's bags, <laughs> got some Q-tips for Sophia Loren. Uh, I was in a movie. They filmed the movie Continental Divide there, uh, or at least a couple scenes, and was uh, met John Belushi, who was the star of that movie. To live in Chicago, you have to learn that you only survive by understanding your opponent, Dr. Porter. First, you have to remember the number, 911. That's the police. And the line will be busy because the rest of Chicago is trying to survive just like you are. Well, two things about that experience. Number one, did you did you make it in the movie? I remember the movie was a pretty good one, Continental Divide. Were you an extra? I was an extra. I got paid and um, I was in a scene. I don't think you can you can barely see me when he's walking in the hotel. I'm walking by with some bags. Uh, I didn't make the uh, credits or anything unfortunately, but I did uh, put my name up on a billboard, a marquee in uh, the Glenwood Theater in Glenwood, Illinois, which is where I worked as an usher in high school. When the movie was there, they had it on the, the marquee, uh, Belushi and Sullivan. Uh, <laughs> you were famous before you were famous. I was uh, famous, <laughs> uh, fake famous. You were not one of the tallest bellboys going, were you? No, but I, I was definitely the most highly educated bellboy, at least at the dream, <laughs> because, of course, it's not like the kind of career that uh, you go to college for. Uh, it was a very interesting experience, and uh, I love the Drake Hotel. I still, whenever I go by it, I always walk through the lobbies and brings back some good memories. You were once quoted by Bruce Miles of the Daily Herald after you were named the columnist for the prestigious In the Wake of the News column of the Tribune. And this is what you said, Sully. One of my specialties is pissing off people. Uh, I, I do uh, believe that I do that. I do piss off people. And sometimes uh, I do it on purpose. Uh, sometimes it's definitely by accident or by fate. Um, I think, uh, you know, being Irish is part of that. Um, <laughs> just We just have a... A thing where we, we just say what's on our minds and I think probably being from Chicago is part of that too and when you put those two together Chicago and Irish it's uh, 
I don't hold back usually. I think you know, and uh, it's not always a good thing when you don't hold back. Uh, I've gotten into it with more players and management that I could list right here, but just off the top of my head, I would say Andy McPhail, um, Terry Bevington, Ed Lynch, Frank Thomas, Kenny Williams. Uh, I mean, you have a long list. <laughs> you can go on and on. And, and the funny part is that sometimes, you know, when the the players' careers are over, they're, you know, we have good relationships. And uh, Frank Thomas always said, uh, you know, you, the best part about uh, knowing Sully is is, uh, you know, when your career's over and uh, you don't have to listen to him anymore. So. Ooh. Back when I was a beat writer, I mean, now you're supposed to be opinionated. So it's, you know, part of the gig as a columnist. But when I was a beat writer, I was particularly opinionated, um, probably more so than I should have been, uh, especially when it came to, like, for example, Ed Lynch, who to me was a very bad executive and <laughs> did not do his job well. And uh, yeah, let me let me interrupt for you. He was also one of the most arrogant people I've ever met. Well, yeah, I'm glad you said that. But uh, yeah, he didn't like me very much at all, which, you know, I, I, I don't blame him, I guess, because I was writing nasty things about him. But then, as fate would have it, uh, you know, I went on a rain delay telecast with uh, Channel 9 back in the day when they used to have writers on the rain delays. And I, I told him in the in the Cubs uh, media room at the lunchroom, uh, well, bad news, Ed, I'm, I'm going on during the rain delay. And he said, well, say nice things about me, Sully. And I said, yeah, sure. And I, I just went on and uh, said that he should be fired. <laughs> caused the, well, that caused, I think was a nice thing you said about him. <laughs> it, it was. It, it caused quite a stir. And my bosses were all upset because, uh, you know, you're the beat writer and you're advocating the firing of the general manager on the team's broadcast, which... You know, I mean, I was, I didn't like bring it out of the blues. Steve Stone and Chip Carey kind of goaded me into it because um, they they knew I did not like Ed Lynch and and that I I, I did believe he, he should have been fired. I, I wasn't just saying that because I didn't like him. Like, he did a terrible job. This was 1999, and he was fired eventually uh, the next year or two years later. I can't remember. So I, I you know, things like that happen and. Uh, I feel vindicated in the end uh, on things like that. But uh, as a beat writer nowadays, you're allowed to have more opinions. In fact, some sometimes they ask you to be more opinionated. But back in the 90s, uh, it was still kind of frowned upon. You also have had a very interesting relationship with a somewhat complicated individual named Carlos Zambrano, a material <laughs> former Cubs pitcher. Tell me a story I don't know about that relationship. Oh my gosh. Well, Big Z, as I called him, as you know, had quite a few incidents that uh, were beyond the pale, uh, you know, shouting, screaming, throwing things, smashing things with the bat. Lou's got to come out to keep his pitcher in the ball game. Well, he bumped him. Oh, you no. can't do that, Carlos. Come on, Carlos. You got to be careful. He bumped him, and that might be a suspension. And he just throws the ball up into the bleachers. And so it was. It is my job to chronicle this. And uh, I, you know, I said, hey, you know, this guy acts like an idiot. He's a good pitcher, but he acts like a fool, and it's a bad example for kids. And uh, so one day uh, we were in Milwaukee, uh, right soon after they started the new park, uh, Miller Park, whatever it's called now. And we're near the batting cage and uh, he, he picked me up like, like a sack of potatoes and held me over his head. He held you over his head. I wish I had a picture of that. Oh, I wish I had a picture too. <laughs> Z, put me down. You're going to injure yourself. I'm going to get blamed. You know, this is when the Cubs were in the race. Uh, back then so they were still a good team and he he did put me down and we had a good laugh about it but he he also once up in milwaukee asked the uh, one of the security guards to that he told him he would pay him a hundred thousand to kill me you know that guy in milwaukee when uh, you said uh, you offered him a million dollars to kill me 
Yeah. Yeah, every time I go up there, he tells people, uh, yeah, this guy, Z uh, was going to offer me a million dollars to kill him. And they're all like, well, why didn't you take it? I heard if I can go back to the time, I don't say that, you know. No. Because I can be dangerous. No. You know, we had some fun with each other. Everyone thought we hated each other because we did yell at each other uh, a lot of times and mostly because he was mad at something I wrote. But yeah, I actually liked him as a person. I thought he was funny. Uh, I just thought he was a bad example for kids. Uh, I remember, he get, remember he got in that big fight with uh, Barrett, punched him in like the dugout and sent him to the hospital. Carlos came off the mound, clearly frustrated. Michael Barrett frustrated and a very heated conversation ensued and unfortunately Bobby got physical right here Zambrano and Barrett so the coaching staff had to get in between and just complete frustration here from the Chicago Cubs I mean that was not good and stuff like that happened quite frequently but you know in the end and I saw him a couple years ago at a Cubs convention this is I think before the pandemic and, you know, we looked at each other like, well, are we going to talk to each other? And, and we did. And I interviewed him and he told me that he had, he was like um, a minister now or some type of minister. And he was like very religious and he had totally changed his whole thing. And, and I wrote about that and he sent me a message thanking me. I think it was on Instagram or some social media. And, uh, you know, now uh, I, I think we're okay now after all these years. Wow, what a relationship. What is it about your relatively new job as a columnist and the three plus decades you spent as a beat writer that you like and dislike the most? I do like the freedom of, of you know, writing about different sports. Uh, like, you know, I was writing about Serena Williams, which you know, no, probably no one would have thought I would be watching women's tennis, but I do, and I enjoy it. Um, my boss gives me total freedom to write whatever I want, um, which is something, you know, I, people peg me as a baseball person, and, and rightly so, because I did it for, you know, 30 years or so, you know, exclusively, and I still am mostly baseball. I would say I, you know, 90% of my stuff's probably Cub Sox or some trend in baseball or something like that. But uh, the last year I had to fill in on the Bulls beat while we looked for a new writer. And I, I enjoyed doing that. I hadn't done that in 30 years. It, it, it's fine. I don't know if I'm totally the perfect person to, to be the wake of the news. Because when I think of wake of the news, it's, you know, Bob Verde and Bernie Lincecum and, you know, these really iconic names in, in journal, Chicago journalism. And I don't, really put myself in their category and nor should I because they were way better writers than me my columns are mostly you know filled with quotes and you know I like to go out to the park and report I don't like to sit at home mostly and just pontificate Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Well, let's move forward. I want to give you some names and get your thoughts about them. First, Jerry Reinsdorf. Jerry is uh, one of the most interesting people that I've covered in my career. And uh, our careers have, uh, you know, paralleled. He bought the socks about the time I was getting into journalism. And uh, so I've covered 
you know, the socks on and off for, you know, the last 30 something years. And uh, I find him interesting. I don't agree with him a whole lot of times, probably more times than not. I, I didn't agree that he should be able to hire a manager without, you know, letting his GM do it. I thought that was a bad move. But I do think he's great for us as far as writing. I mean, he's an interesting guy to write about. You know, this is a wonderful evening. But sometimes it has a tendency to go a little long, and I don't want to contribute to that. So as Henry VIII said to his wives, I won't keep you that long. But I wish he talked. He, he, he doesn't talk anymore, except maybe to Bob Nightingale or maybe a few other people that aren't local. So uh, he was very interesting when he talked and said a lot of controversial things, and he was great for the media. But now he's just kind of like, sitting in his ivory tower not saying anything to anyone and i think that's bad for him but you know what are you gonna do here's a really good one for you sammy sosa yeah that's very complicated because there was a time when sammy looked probably looked at me as his like uh, biographer i was you know during the home run race i was writing so much good stuff about him the two two Line drive, center field, Grissom back, he did it, number 65, and there is no doubt about it. And then, uh, of course, after that, uh, his career kind of, the steroid thing and the court bad and the walking out on the team, it really had a bad ending with the Cubs. And we had a bad ending, too. Uh, I remember once he came up to me and said, uh, you know, you don't like me. I don't like you. So I'll just say bleep you. You just say bleep me. And uh, then let's move on. And I said, oh, okay, cool. So we, we kind of had an agreement <laughs> to that we didn't like each other, but we still work together or still, you know, I still had to write about him, obviously. That lasted for like two weeks and he loafed on some play or something. And I wrote about it, and, and then he was back to uh, hating me again. So I, I, I never voted for him for the Hall of Fame, so I'm sure that probably ticks him off. But um, I do think he should be in the Cubs Hall of Fame. I, I, I do advocate for that, and I do think he should return to Wrigley Field, even though a lot of people don't like him. There's still a lot of people that do like him, and it would be a mixed reaction, but, uh, you know, it's, it's – I mean, Barry Bonds is, was welcomed in San Francisco. Mark McGuire is welcomed in St. Louis. Uh, I don't think anyone totally forgives the steroid guys, but, uh, you know, life goes on. And he did contribute a lot to the organization, especially uh, financially. They made a lot of money off him. So I think they should invite him back. There's a name that maybe the younger generation doesn't know, but the rest of us do. The Dean, Jerome Holtzman, the Hall of Fame writer, who was the man who helped develop the save in Major League Baseball. Yeah, Jerome was uh, kind of my mentor as a baseball writer. Uh, we went around a lot. I used to travel with him on the road. Uh, I was lucky to get him like towards the end of his career. It was sort of the beginning of mine in baseball. And he was just a fascinating guy. He knew everyone. And he, he always said to me, which I never really took to heart, but he said, you, you writers today, and he wasn't just talking about me, he was talking about all the beat writers are so much better than we were when we were in your position because we had to do so much more work. There was so much more pressure. He was uh, a great chronicler of baseball and he was the most unbelievable researcher. He, his files, I went to his house in Evanston and he had like, tons and tons of files just a really wonderful character and uh taught me one thing that you know baseball it's a serious job covering baseball but you still have to have fun and I've always taken that to heart when I'm in the press box uh, I think as you know I I'm a very social person and I like to have fun and when we're in the press box uh you know there's there's usually a lot of laughs I'm going to give you four managers Okay. Lou Pinella and Joe Madden of the Cubs. Uh -huh. Terry Bevington and Tony LaRusso of the White Sox. Wow. Uh, well, Lou Pinella, one of my all-time favorites. But I'm tired of it. You know, and Steve Stone, 
he's got enough problems doing what he does with the White Sox. What job has he had in baseball besides talking on the on 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 on, on television or radio? What has he what has he done? Why isn't he a farm director and bring some kids around? Why isn't he a general manager? Uh, I guess my favorite Lou story is when uh, there was a day the wind was blowing in and he was saying he one of his post game quotes was something like uh well that wind oh that too bad that wind was blowing in or something like that and i quote him too bad that wind was blowing in today cried the pinella so somebody told him that i had he had i don't think he read it somebody told him that i wrote that he was crying after the game <laughs> instead of using the word cried in the you know Mm -hmm. in the way that I was obviously meant it and uh he gets done with his press conference in his office and he goes and one more thing Sullivan I was not crying the other day and I'm like uh <laughs> Lou what are you talking about it crying and he goes uh yeah you wrote that I was crying no I, I didn't write that you were crying I said you cried in the in the context of you were talking out loud and then uh, finally, he, someone had just been apparently pulling a joke on him, and he, he calmed down after that. But uh, we had a lot of laughs. He, yeah. you know, he was one of the funniest guys. And you know, it was, the best part about covering Lou was that, you know, he came into the job thinking it was something different than it was, and it took one week of spring training before he realized that uh, it was not what what he was. It was not as advertised, and. Uh, you know, that's when he started the whole cubby occurrence thing that mm. things happen to the Cubs that don't happen to other teams. And I, I really believe that, that stupid things happen to the Cubs organization that don't happen elsewhere. And it, I don't know why it is, but it is the case. Um, and Joe Madden, I think one of the greatest managers ever, uh, what he did in Tampa Bay and with the Cubs is, is I think, underrated. The Tampa team that he had had no money and yet uh, they always won with him went to the world series he took that cubs team that people forget that 2014 cubs team it was getting better but it was still a bad team they added john lester and and the rookies came up but still they won 97 games and, and a lot of that was joe madden's you know just changing the culture there i want to congratulate the people of chicago our fans uh, our ownership uh, theo and jed the team, the players. I mean, uh, listen, I, <laughs> I am late to the party. I came here while all the heavy lifting had been done. Um, I feel very fortunate to be given this assignment. I thought he was kind of screwed when he didn't get a contract extension after he won the only Cubs championship of any of our lifetime, and he, he couldn't get an extension out of that. I thought it was ridiculous, and uh, I, I still think that uh, hopefully he comes back because I think he deserves another shot at managing. Uh, Bevington, uh, it, you know, I, I would have to say probably the, my least favorite person in baseball history. In uh, <laughs> <My> history. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he just was just a very, he's just an angry, bitter man. And we, we didn't understand why. We didn't know why. We certainly wasn't any of us we we're just doing our jobs and Amy, when he took over for uh gene lamont you know you couldn't ask him any question without him being defensive you know how's the weather today what do you mean by that uh <laughs> was he you know, basically just not equipped to be a manager i thought so i think he was not equipped to be manager uh and there are people like that you know manager in any business you you're you have to deal with people and he could not deal with people. I don't think he particularly liked people. You know, maybe he wasn't a misanthrope, but he sure acted like one. I thought he was particularly um, mean spirited to women reporters. Um, I won't name their names, but he made one of them cry in front of me. And I got, I, I was like so upset. And uh, I remember once we were in his office and uh, he was being, just being totally rude. And I, picked up my tape recorder and said, I, well, I'm not going to listen to this anymore and walked out and uh, some of the reporters followed me. And, and that was the end of that. Um, and there was a game in Minnesota where uh, we had just stopped talking. I stopped going to his press conferences and uh, Tony Phillips and 
Ozzy and uh, Robin Ventura, some of the players came over and they're like, well, why aren't you over listening to the manager? And I just said, hey, I, I can't take it anymore. I, I just can't take that kind of rude treatment and he doesn't give us anything. The players felt the same way that I did about him. And I also believe that uh, Reinsdorf brought him back that one year. I was gone by then, but he brought him back just basically despite the media and the fans because <laughs> everyone hated him. But Ryan Sharp's like, well, okay, too bad. You know, he's here. It's my call. It's interesting to note the last person we're going to talk about is the aforementioned Jerry Reinsdorf bringing back a manager, and this would be Tony La Russa. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was a strange uh, call. And uh, it was so obvious that why it was done. And they tried, at first, they tried to pretend that uh, oh no he was just the best candidate out there you're, you're easy to fall back on some old old narratives that this was about friendship or potentially righting old wrongs in the end tony was the choice because it's believed that tony is the best man to take us in the to win, help us win championships over the next several years obviously you know he is a hall of famer but that doesn't mean he's the best candidate right now in this era in this time so it was obviously just Reinstorf doing what he wanted to do. I thought it was not good that he bypassed his general manager and even Kenny Williams, although I don't know how Kenny felt about it, but it was pretty obvious that it was should have been Rick Hahn's call. He did a good job putting the rebuild together uh, at the time. Obviously not now. It doesn't look so good, but yeah, I, I thought that was a, a very bad move and you know, they won last year, so I guess they justified it. And then this year, they can say, well, there was a lot of injuries and blah, blah, blah. So maybe it's not his fault. And and surely it, it, the, the Sox collapse is not totally his fault. But he has contributed to it. And I think uh, sometimes he, he's got to lighten up because uh, I don't think it's, it's good for him. I was there when he first became manager of the White Sox in 1979. Yeah. And what I recall then is I think what he is now, when it came to losing, he was very short and very trite when the White Sox lost. When they won, he would be opened up. But when they lost, yeah. not a good guy to talk to. Totally. And I think he, he admits that. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We resume with Paul Sullivan on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You also worked with Theo Epstein, the man, of course, who helped build the Cubs' first World Series champion in 108 years. A very interesting, very intelligent gentleman, but a relationship you had that also had a twist to it. Yeah, he came in after Jim Hendry, who we all had a really good relationship, all the reporters, and he would be on the field every day. And whenever you needed him, you could call him. And when Theo came in, the, the, you know, the faucet was shut. You know, if you wanted to contact him, you had to text him. And, you, you know, if he felt like texting you back, uh, you know, he might. But uh, that was difficult for me as the beat writer to not have a relationship with the general, or well, the president, but de facto general manager since he was in charge. But over the first few years, the rebuild, he kind of lightened up and got to know me. Uh, I'm sure he had heard some bad things about me as well. And probably (laughs) from, uh, you know, the owner and Crane Kenny and whoever. And, you know, I was not well liked by them, I'm sure. So whatever he heard was probably bad. And uh, it took him a while to get to know me and 
even even when he left a couple of years ago, he he admitted that uh, yeah, it, it took some getting used to Sully, <laughs> the, you know, because I'm I have kind of a snarky. You're an acquired taste, aren't you? I'm acquired taste. Definitely, <laughs> be the first to admit that. And he was, you know, I thought he was kind of an East Coast snob at first, and uh, he, he said some some of the way he the way he talked, you know, these parallel lines of parallel tracks of competing and you know he just talked in corporate language that i thought was way out of touch with the midwest and i think eventually he became a little bit more of a chicago midwestern guy as he grew and uh maybe i got to understand him more i I think we have a good relationship now i don't really have to deal with him obviously i will when he's the commissioner but i was just going to ask you do you think he's going to be the next commissioner oh for sure yeah i just think it's a matter of when He's already moved back to the East Coast, so he's, you know, he's in position. I don't think Manfred wants to do this forever. He's not a very well-liked person. Um, he's basically gotten everything he's wanted. Think about all the games that you've covered, Sully. Thousands and thousands yeah. of them, many that wound up losses. Tell me a story I don't know about one of those losses in a game that I covered. Game six of the 2003 National League Championship Series at Wrigley Field against the Marlins, a game best known as the Hartman game. Again in the air, down the left field line, a reaching into the stands and couldn't get it, and he's livid with a fan. We've seen this happen here before. That's awfully close to fan interference right there. The umpire's all over it, but the fan reaches out over the field. Then it can be ruled fan interference. That is very, very close. Oh, my God. So, you know, I had been covering the Cubs a very long time, and uh, they had won game five. Things were looking pretty good. They were winning game six in the later innings. And obviously we have to write our stories you know, for an early edition. So my story was you're writing it, writing it as it goes along. And I had a story written out, you know, Cubs go to the World Series first time since 1945, blah, blah, blah. And all I had to do is fill in the, you know, the blanks the score. And, you know, Mark Pryor was dealing. Remember, he had like a two hitter going oh, yeah. eighth inning or something like that. And I really, you know, you learn over the years not to get ahead of yourself when you're writing on deadline because it, it always bites you but yeah you know I don't know I was just caught up in everything and I I was really ready to go my story is ready to go and and then the foul ball comes and uh you know it was so far away I I couldn't really see what happened but then they showed the replay about 500 times on Fox so I I just had to go into total rewrite mode you know that every everything happened so quickly it, it, you know, it seemed on TV like it took forever, but, you know, when you're on deadline and you're changing Cubs go to the World Series to Cubs blow game six because of a foul ball, it, you know, it was a lot of stress and I still don't know how I did that. But, uh, yeah, I totally rewrote the story and getting uh, messages from my boss. Don't mention the Billy Goat. Don't mention the Billy. Whatever you do, don't mention the Billy Goat. I'm like, well, how could I not mention the Billy Goat the whole Cubs thing is about the curse of the billy goat and and here you are this guy drops a foul ball that could have been caught and you know and then they blow the game that might be one of the most infamous games in the history of that ballpark oh definitely definitely and uh, you know and when you call it the bartman game it's not fair to bartman of course because they i'm sure they would have lost that game anyways but you can't deny that that one moment changed the whole mood of the ballpark um and once the mood of the ballpark changed and you know prior was shuffling on the mound it was he i don't think he gets anywhere near the amount of blame that he deserves because he just couldn't compose himself after that obviously moises is to blame for you know throwing a fit on the field and uh people can blame dusty if they want for not coming out or not sending larry out Larry Rothschild to talk to Pryor, but uh, you know, there's just so many things that happened there. And, and the, the funniest part was the next day, of course they lose this and Cub fans like, Oh my God, it's the end of the world, but they still had Kerry Wood uh, pitching game seven. 
and I ran into some Tribune executives, uh, Andy McKenna and, and another man that, you know, as I was walking up to the press box and you could see in their face, they were just totally panicked. And I said, ah, oh, don't worry. You got Kerry Wood pitching. Everything's going to be fine. Of course, every, everything was not fine. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I will say that that Kerry Wood, when he hit that home run, it was the loudest that I can probably remember at Wrigley Field. In the air, left center field, Kerry Wood plays long ball. That was a great moment. It's just too bad that, you know, it's kind of lost in history because they lost that game. But uh, that was uh, that was one of the great moments too, but everyone remembers the Bartman moment instead. What was it like to cover the White Sox and the Cubs when they won the World Series? Well, it was different, totally different for me, because when I was covering the Sox in the World Series, I was just the, the sidebar guy. I'd covered the Cubs in 2005, and obviously they didn't make the playoffs. So when the Sox were in the playoffs, they moved me over as just a sidebar, you know, features. And uh, It was a lot of fun, and I did enjoy myself. And I remember uh, the late, great Terry Armour and I, when the Sox won in Houston, we um, – we were in our hotel room smoking big cigars and drinking scotch. Tying run at second, two out. Palmero over the head of Jenks. Uribe charges, throws out, and the White Sox have won the World Series. We had used to go to Comiskey Park before I was. We were even writer, sports writers. We would go and hang out at in the bleachers at Old Comiskey and watch games. So to think that we were, you know, covering <laughs> the Sox winning the World Series was. You know, it was a big deal for us. And uh, so we enjoyed that. Uh, the Cubs, you know, that was just a surreal experience overall because uh, even though you knew they were a good team and that they could win the World Series, I, I, I always thought they were going to blow it, always. And uh, just like in 03, I had to write a story that's saying they won in game seven before deadline. I wrote it, sent it in. And, you know, just fill in the blanks. And then, uh, you know, was it Raji Davis hit the home run off Chapman, <laughs> tied it up. And I was like, oh, my God. I, I thought about the Bartman game. I thought, oh, my God, this is happening to me again. Thirteen years later, how could this possibly be? I, you know, the same exact thing. My story's written, but, but fortunately, uh, you know, after there was a short rain delay, and the Tribune uh, held off printing the story, so my story on the Cubs losing Game Seven never made the edition. So thank God for that. I didn't want to be Dewey defeats Truman Part Two, mm-hmm. and uh, no, it was a great experience and. Uh, I was very happy because I, I really liked that team and I liked all the people on it. And I even hugged uh, Laura Ricketts uh, in the clubhouse after the game. And, uh, uh, you know, that was probably the last time any Ricketts will ever hug me. <laughs> Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. 
You went to Homewood Flossmoor High School, which is located in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. It is home to so many journalists. Jason Benetti, the voice of the White Sox and Fox Sports. Scott Merkin, longtime beat writer for the White Sox for MLB.com. Lawrence Holmes, talk show host at WSCR The Score, whom we recently featured on this podcast. And yeah. Chuck Garfine, who hosts the pre- and post-game White Sox telecast for NBC Sports Chicago. What is it? about this school that has produced so many top-notch sports journalists? Well, those guys that you mentioned, and there's more, obviously, our, our sports editor, Amanda Kashubi, is from HF, and Ben Bradley from Channel 9. They're, That's they're right. A whole bunch of... It, it did have a great journalism uh, department. We, we won a lot of awards when I was on the paper, our, the HF Voyager. I call us the HF Mafia, but yeah, I'm very proud of... Uh, going to a high school that produced so many journalists and uh, very proud to be uh, in the HF Mafia. Now let me tell you a story about Sully and me. You actually might know. When I was let go by WBBM Radio in July of 2020, you reached out to me and you wrote a story about it. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated it at the time, which was so necessary when you have the rug pulled out from under you. It was kind of like an obituary, but just the same. I want to publicly thank you for doing that. Well, I got to say, George, uh, that pissed me off. <laughs> You'd say that. Pissed that me I, off, too, I might add. I'm sure it pissed you off, but it pissed me off. That, to me, you know, really upset me because, uh, well, obviously, we're friends and I've known you for many, many years, good colleagues, and, and always enjoyed your work. But just to do it at that point of time I just thought was very just callous and I don't want to you know get into it with the, your former employers but it is just unnecessary and but I, I was honored to do that and that story got a ton of ton of clicks so you you did have a lot of fans and um, I, you know, I always feel like uh, we're all together in the press box uh, TV, radio, newspapers, uh, especially in Chicago. Uh, I've been to many press boxes around the country where, the, you know, they don't like the TV people, they don't like the radio people, or they don't like the other paper. But in Chicago, it's a pretty tight-knit group um, where we all have each other's backs in the long run, even though we're competing for stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's what separates Chicago journalism from a lot of different cities that uh, we like to compete, but we also like to party and, you know, go out afterwards, have a beer. Um, it's just a very Midwestern kind of a vibe. Speaking of uh, going out and having a beer, you have quite a relationship with Murphy's Bleachers, which is right down the block from Wrigley Field. You have spent many time there hoisting one or two or perhaps three or four. What is it about Murphy's Bleachers? Well, I would have to dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I do like Murphy's. I, I like Beth Murphy. She's, you know, I think she's funny. I, I don't know if she likes me because sometimes I, I poke fun at their signs. Their marquees are kind of goofy. But uh, covering the Cubs is a totally different animal than any other organization in sports, even the Bears. So, uh well, but the neighborhood gentrified in the yeah. 80s. Things changed dramatically. Yeah. Harry Carey was there. Sammy Harry Sosa Perry. came. Attendance yeah. came. You know, all these things, all these things transpired. And then, of course, Tom Ricketts buys the franchise and completely revamps the entire neighborhood. It, it is an experience. It's very different. Yes, it's very different. And uh, as much as I don't like a lot of the changes that the Ricketts have made, I, I do like some of them. And I always get to a pigeonhole to someone that's against everything the Cubs do as far as changing. I, I do not like the sports book, honestly, that's being built onto the uh, side of the ballpark. I think they could have done that elsewhere and left the ballpark alone, but I do like Gallagher way. I think that was a good addition. You went to the university of Missouri, which of course, a lot of people know has an outstanding journalism school. Only you weren't part of it. <laughs> no, I was not part of it. Uh, and it is my own fault. I, you know, I was a very social person. Let me put it that way in, in college. And I had a lot of fun. And I, I kind of thought I could cruise through it because uh, I pre pretty much cruised through high school. And uh, 
I, I did, you know, have good grades, but I didn't have good enough grades to get into journalism school. You, you don't get into J school there until your junior year and you had to have a B average and I had a B minus average and they wouldn't let me in. So I wound up getting an English degree that I, I don't regret anything about my college experience, but I do wonder, you know, I, I've been doing this over 40 years now in, for one of the biggest papers in the country. And they, they just never acknowledge me at all as like part of their, you know, you would think they would be like, Oh, Missouri graduate of 40 years at the Chicago Tribune. Nah. So it's kind of like I, they still hold it against me that I was a partier in college. You had a very heady, if not master mentor in Mike Royko, the tenacious but very creative news columnist for the Tribune. He was as much a part of the paper as the paper itself. I probably owe my whole career to Mike Royko because uh, when I started working for him as a leg man, I, you know, obviously, like I said, I didn't go to J school at Missouri and anything I learned about reporting was on my own, um, you know, and he basically taught me how to be a reporter, how to be a researcher, um, how to deal with people, not to take, uh, to not take no for an answer, no comments. Uh, if someone says no comments, you call them back or, um, and don't take any shit from anyone, excuse my language. You know, he was the, the greatest journalist of, of his time and one of the greatest of all time in my mind. So, uh, it was a great lesson. And, you know, honestly, as I've written many times and as I mean, even I joke about it with his, his wife now. He's been gone for 25 years, but we didn't get along. On a, I was a very stubborn young man and uh, didn't take kindly to uh, his gruff exterior sometimes. And there'd be times he would just tell me I, I could get someone off the street that could do this job. And, and I'd be like, yeah, well, go ahead. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of bad incidents between us and some bad blood but by the time uh, I graduated you know the uh, like being a leg man is like being an apprentice so I had two years of being a re his reporter and uh, once I moved on to sports and started having some success on my own I think I, I understood that what he was teaching me it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a dicta Mike Ditka and his quarterbacks you know I was always yelling at him but underneath you did have that respect and I, he taught me a lot. And uh, once I showed some success, we we got back together. And, you know, he was, I think he was proud of uh, what I had accomplished. Before you started writing sports, you were also working under the longtime food critic, Phil Vitell. Did you ever, ever get any free meals out of it? I got a ton of free meals. Really? I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was a restaurant critic uh, for just for the suburban restaurants. And it, we had a, a part of the Tribune called the Suburban Trib that I, I think it was zoned, you know, you could get the South Suburbs or West Suburbs. So it, you didn't get all of them. Yeah, he sent me on uh, restaurant reviews and uh, uh, even theater reviews. I did some theater reviews. For, this is before Phil was the food critic. He was like a features editor. And uh, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble back then because uh, I think one of the theater companies banned me from attending and uh, they would write Phil letters about uh, who is this person? He doesn't know anything about theater, which was basically true. Uh, and my mother, even when I was the restaurant critic, she was like, you know, you never eat anything. You're the pickiest eater ever. How did that happen? And I'm like, well, you know, I would take my friends out or my girlfriend or whoever, and we would order up so much food and take it home. And I would, I remember giving out pizzas to homeless people on the street. Just wow because uh, I knew I couldn't eat it all and it wasn't my money and uh, they looked like they could use the pizza. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was, I shouldn't have never had, I should never have had those jobs, but uh, it is a fun part of uh, my history that no one knows about. Why do I get the feeling, Sully, that on your resume, it says sports writer, sports columnist, and troublemaker? Uh, that's, Probably true. Yeah, I've caused a bit of trouble over the years. Uh, trouble seems to find me. As Andy McPhail said, I do have a warped perspective on life. 
I think being short as uh, you know, I am, I, you know, you get a lot of grief when you're a kid, when you're short and you just have to learn to take it and have some fun with it. And so I think that toughens you up and, uh, you know, you have to do more too, because uh, people kind of overlook uh, people that aren't tall. There's a lot of factors that have you know, turned me into the person I am, and I don't know if they're all good. <laughs> Maybe it's not good at all. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, I've turned into a writer that is uh, probably the best thing about me or the thing that I'm known most for is that I, I speak my mind and I have no regrets about that. How do you envision life after being a sports writer or have you? I have. I, I do every day <laughs> because I'm close to retirement age and uh, I, I do think about it a lot. Um, I don't really have a lot of hobbies like golfing or anything. So I think I would probably still continue to write in some form. But I have a lot of stories that have been unpublished that I probably would like to get out there once I retire. So it's it's hard to think of since I've done this so long and I've you know never changed jobs. I've <laughs> been to one paper for 41 years. It's it would be a big step and it would be a, probably a very anxious time for me to to do that. I ask this final question to all my guests, Sully. If not for sports writing, what would you have been? Well, bellboy, obviously. <laughs> A I professional been, bellboy. I would have been a very funny and <laughs> acerbic bellboy. And uh, the guests, guests would have loved me. Someone probably would have hated me. But uh, I would have been getting, instead of getting Q-tips for Sophia Loren, I'd be getting for like Taylor Swift now or whoever stays at the Drake. I'm not really sure anymore. I think bartender, honestly, would be a, a good job for me. I, I did that in college a little bit. And uh, I, I enjoy talking to people. And I... As you know, I enjoy drinking, so I, th I think I'd be a bartender. I think I'd be a good bartender. Well, I think you've been a pretty damn good writer, Sully. Let me tell you what a pleasure it's been to share many press boxes with you for all these years. You're really a breath of fresh air. And I think everybody who's been around you would agree, maybe with the exception of those you've pissed off, but I kind of doubt it. Thank you, Sully, Paul Sullivan, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to WGN-TV, Continental Divide the Movie, Fox Sports, and the Basketball Hall of Fame for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that helped make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.